amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista or homebird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunnstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Jennifer Pan was the victim of a horrible robbery where her mother was killed and her father was left fighting for his life. She told her story to the police, but when they started putting the puzzle together, some of the pieces just didn't fit. This is Monsters. Help me, please. I need help. I don't know where my parents are, Jennifer yelled into the phone after dialing 911. Ma'am, ma'am, calm down. What's going on? The operator asked the frantic girl. Someone just broke into our house and they just stole all our money, Jennifer explains. She continues, I just heard shots. Pops. I'm tied upstairs. I had my hands tied behind my back. I had my cell phone in my pocket. Please come. Help. Now, when you're calling 911 to get help for your family who has just been robbed and you believe have possibly been shot, are you in a state of mind to explain to the 911 operator exactly how you managed to call even though you were tied up? I'll say this for the hundredth time. Everybody reacts differently under stress, but people who immediately focus on their own alibi and maintaining its feasibility tend to be suspect. In the background of the call, cries of pain can be heard from Han as he comes up the stairs, passing Jennifer at the top of the stairs, and he runs outside. She yells out, quote, Dad, I'm calling 911. I'm okay, end quote. 
she made sure to let him know that she was okay, even though, for some reason, he didn't seem to care. When police arrived on the scene, they found Han outside with a neighbor, and he was covered in blood. The combination of injury and broken English made it hard to communicate, so he made a gun with his hand to convey that he had been shot. Police entered the home with guns drawn. They cleared the first floor, noting that everything seemed to be in place, a departure from their usual robbery scene. Robbery scenes tend to be a mess, with most of the homeowner's property being tossed to look for cash and valuables. They descended to the basement, where they found the body of Bick lying on the floor in front of the couch, a blue towel covering her head. Once the house was cleared, paramedics rushed in to try to revive the woman, but it was no use. Bick Pan was pronounced dead at the scene. The master bedroom was the only room in the house that seemed to be in disarray. The mattress was flipped and the drawers had been rifled through. Once the upstairs was cleared, an officer cut Jennifer free and ushered her outside to the paramedics. At Markham Stofill Hospital, Jennifer is told that her father's injuries are severe and he's being rushed into surgery. She speaks to a crisis counselor on site at the hospital and is prescribed anti-anxiety medication to calm her nerves. With Han in surgery, an officer takes Jennifer to the Markham police station to give a statement. Her cell phone is also seized as evidence in the investigation. She tells the story of what happened that night, what was taken, what the assailant said, and provided a description before being released. The following investigation turns up more questions than answers. Investigators attempt to see if there's anything connecting the pans to illegal activity. Drugs, gambling, fraud, anything that might lead them to having angered someone dangerous, but they find nothing. They wonder if maybe the attackers were drawn to the house because they saw them driving luxury vehicles. If that was the case, why did they not take either of those vehicles? It was as if the suspects were just driving down the street, picked a random house, and decided to rob whoever was inside, something that was statistically unheard of. It isn't until an anonymous person comes forward and tells police that Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, Daniel Wong, is in fact the delivery person for a drug dealer. This information opens a whole new world of possibilities for police. Was Jennifer also involved in dealing drugs? Had she gone on deliveries with Daniel? Did someone plan this attack as retribution for something drug-related? When they checked Daniel's record and found drug-related convictions, they brought him in for questioning. During their interview with Daniel, they learn all the details of Jennifer's relationship with Daniel being a secret, the lies to her parents and the reason that the two were no longer together. At this time, Jennifer was in the intensive care unit of Sunnybrook Hospital, where her father was in an induced coma. She was listening to the doctor tell her about the bullet that had gone into his face and shattered a bone in his neck. He also had a broken bone near his eye. The bullets had missed his carotid artery, and though he still had bullet fragments in his face, he was going to survive. While her family members were celebrating this remarkable news, Jennifer asked if anyone had changed so she could use the payphone. She claimed that her cell phone battery had died. Her uncle offered her to use his cell phone, but she declined. He shrugged it off and gave her some change, and Jennifer left the room to make a phone call. Phone records show that the call was placed to Daniel Long, but it went to voicemail. Two days after her first interview, Jennifer was brought back into the police station to provide another statement. 
This could be a good practice for a witness to possibly remember more details now that the dust has settled and the shock has worn off. It's also good practice to see if a suspect's story has changed. At this point, Jennifer is somewhere between a suspect and a witness. The investigators weren't sure she was involved, but there were definitely some red flags popping up. As soon as the interview starts, she already voices her concerns that she's going to say something wrong. I'm very nervous, and I why are don't you let's why are you why are you nervous? Tell me about why you're nervous. Because I don't want to say the wrong things. Oh, yeah, so because that you, day was a lot. You're right. And I've been scattered, and so bits and pieces are here, and some pieces aren't here, and. I'm just... So, I want you to sit back in your chair, okay? Just sit back in your chair, take a deep breath, okay? Close your eyes, just follow my line, just sit back in the chair for a second, sit back, relax the best you can, close your eyes, and just breathe for a minute, okay? We're not in any type of danger. We're nowhere. We're in a very safe place. Okay? And we're going to work through this. And don't worry about what you forget or what you mix up or whatever you're doing. Is You start and pl- push the play button for that day. And if you stick to everything that you remember happening that day, it will come out in sequence. Okay, and I'm going to show you a technique after we go through this that will sh- that will show it to you. Okay, so let's just start. You've taken a deep breath. You've relaxed. You're in a good position right there. Let's start from the beginning of the day when you wake up, and let's start moving forward from there. Her story immediately starts off a little different. What I can remember is when I woke up, I had some breakfast. And I went upstairs to do some piano history, and I was on the computer. What time is that around? I'm not 100% sure. Time isn't, like, is it, you know, time is important, meaning is it, is it in the beginning of the, is it morning, is the light out, is it in the afternoon? Like Probably when? maybe before noon. Before noon, sometime before noon. Yes. Okay. Before noon. Um, I play some Facebook games, so I was doing that, and then I stopped, and then I was doing some studying for my piano. Like I said, I was working towards a piano degree in teaching, so I was uh, reading some history notes and going over some practice examination papers. Who's in the house at that time? My father has left for work, and my mother's home. Okay. Where's your mom? Do you know where she is? Don't remember at this point. Okay. I've heard, I'm getting the last few days all mixed up together. Uh, I believe she had left with my aunt to go and visit my grandfather that morning okay. or early afternoon. Um, he is residing. Well, Sorry. He reside, resided at a Manchung nursing home, and he had just gotten back from the hospital uh, Saturday. 
In her initial statement, she said that her mother woke her up at about 9.30 and she was going to go with her mother to visit her grandfather. Now she got up sometime before noon and doesn't remember where her mother was. None of this involves the incident, so it's hard to believe that she would be making up lies about this point in the day, so it was probably legitimately forgotten how the morning went. Her story remains consistent throughout the middle of the day, Bick returning home about 3 p.m. and starting to make dinner. Han had arrived home a little late because he had forgotten to lock something at work. She texted her friend Adrian at about 6 o'clock and he arrived at about 6.30. She recalled them watching the television show's Gossip Girl and How I Met Your Mother. Adrian left the house at about 9 p.m. and Jennifer went upstairs to get ready for bed. Han was still in the office on the computer. Bick returned home at about 9.15 and Jennifer went downstairs to say hello. When she went back upstairs, Han had gone to bed. She was on the phone with an ex-coworker, Ed, when she heard her mother calling for her father and then heard other voices. She's like, Hanoi, Songdae. And what does that translate to? Uh, That's my father's name, Han. Uh, come down here. Does she say anything else associated with that? With that? I can't hear clearly because like, I was on the phone and the TV was on, sure. but that's what I heard. Is she yelling? Or is it um, normal? It's a loud, it's a, she's not yelling, but it's a loud tone. Okay. And normally that tone means that I need to go down and see what's happening, usually. So that's when I told him, I told Edward, I was like, okay, I got to go. I'll call you later. And I hang up the phone with him. Have you heard anything else at this point in time? As I'm hanging up the phone with him, I hear footsteps going up the stairs. She described hearing footsteps coming up the stairs. She heard noises in her parents' room and then heard footsteps go down the stairs. It's not clear exactly what those footsteps are doing, if someone came upstairs and led Han back downstairs, or if Han had already gone downstairs and the footsteps were of somebody looking for money. It seems that more than one assailant went upstairs and only one went back down, because when Jennifer peeked out of her bedroom door, she saw a man at her brother's bedroom. When he sees her, he pulled out a gun and told her to sit on her bed and asks her where her money is. She opened the drawer to her bedside table, where she had about $2,000 in savings. It was at this point where she managed to slip her cell phone into the waistband on the back of her pants. Then the intruder tied her hands behind her back. So I believe he told me to stand up so he could tie my hands together. And I was trying to make it loose so I could I could do something but he had pulled him so tight and he made sure I squealed before he before he let go so you've squealed they're tight and they're behind your back and that's when he grabs me and starts leading me down the stairs okay does he pat you down or search you or do anything thank goodness no because if he had pat me down he would have found my phone okay after tying her hands behind her back, the man led her downstairs and pushed her down to sit on the floor next to the stairs. My stairs are a little curved, and we just went, he sat, he made me, pushed me down by my shoulders and told me to sit on the floor. Do you feel the gun? Is he using his hand? He's using his hand to lead me down the stairs and force me to sit down. Uh, only one hand. Okay. When you say you're on the floor, how are you on the floor? 
How are you? What are you? How, what's your position? Are you lying on the floor? Are you sitting on the floor? I'm sitting on the floor, cross-legged, when with uh, number one behind me. Okay. In her initial statement, she said that she was led down the stairs and told to get on her knees with her face down toward the floor. Now she's sitting cross-legged, looking down. This is where she realizes there are three men. Number one, number two, and number three. Number one is in charge, number two doesn't talk, and number three has a bit of an accent. She said it reminded her of her friend's parents who were from Guyana. In her first interview, she also said that she was tied up in her bedroom and then taken straight down the hall to her parents' room. This time, she said she was taken straight downstairs. The men start asking Han where his wallet is. He had a gun pointed at my father, asking him if he had money in his wallet and where the money was in the house. And he asked my father how much he had in his wallet. And my father answered him, $60. And he kept yelling, you better not be lying to me. Is there more? Where is the rest? And another person who was hiding behind the wall in the kitchen, from where I stood, I couldn't see him at first. He had was asking my mother where her purse was. Han said he only had about $60 in his wallet, so they asked Bic where her purse is. She seems to have a hard time communicating with him and stands up. Jennifer described number two, pushing her mother back onto the couch. She keeps saying, because they keep uttering, if you cooperate, no one will get hurt. And she keeps asking herself, where's my purse? Where's my purse? In English. And then I believe she remembers that she didn't take a purse out. She only had a wallet that day. After she came home, she had a wallet. She was trying to find it. And number two was looking around for it. Was she up helping to look for it? That The second time, that's when she st- stood up to help. And that's when she got pushed back down. Okay. Are they bound? Do you see their hands or? My mother, when she got up, I, she was not bound. Okay. So do they direct number two to where this per, where the wallet is? Or does he find it that you know? I don't know. Okay. She doesn't think her parents are tied up. This is the part that confuses investigators. Three men broke into a random home to rob the residents. They shot and killed two of the people they robbed, but the third they tied up and led around the house with them, making her have the most interaction with them. She would be the most likely to be able to identify them, but they left her alive? It doesn't make sense. Police in that area said the whole method of robbery was off for a typical robbery in that area. Most people burglarize houses during the day, when people are most likely to be away at work or school. Even if they do enter an occupied home, they grab what they can and leave because robbery could get them less than a year in prison, whereas murder could get them life. Killing the person you're robbing just isn't worth it. Han told the intruders that his wallet was upstairs. Number one tells me to stand up. 
And because I'm cross-legged on the floor, I, with my hands behind my back, I couldn't get up very well. And so he kind of, he, with one hand, he kind of like, pulled me up. And he said, come here. He didn't say who or what. He just said, come here. And he brought me upstairs and he said, you're going to take me to the wallet. Show me where your father's wallet, where does he keep his wallet? He, they take me to my parents' room and I can see the bed is turned over and everything's awry. And you're with... Um, number one is still behind me. Yes. And number two at that point is on his way up. Okay, so he's not up there yet. Okay. Do you hear any interaction going on between your parents and number three? Can you hear anything? I don't recall anything. Okay. So you get to the top of the stairs. And he takes me to my parents' room. Where are you standing? At first I was standing at the doorway, like in the middle of the doorway, and then he pushed me aside to my left a little so that number two can come in. Where this would have been the second time the assailants took Jennifer to her parents' bedroom in her first story... This is the first time she's going in that room in this story. The two men tear apart the master bedroom, but are not able to find Han's wallet, a seemingly strange amount of work for $60. Jennifer told the detectives that they left her parents' room empty-handed. Okay, now, did, did you see them recover anything inside your mom and dad's room? I did not see anything, no. Are you sure? Because uh, we would, when we spoke the last time, there was some mention of some other money that went missing. There are... Yes, the U.S. currency. So how did that get found? I believe when they were looking for my father's wallet, they had opened the drawer, and there was a, it was in an envelope. What drawer would that have been in? On my, on the, if you're in, at the door where I was standing, on the left side, the bedside table. Whose side of the bed is it? That's my mother's side of the bed. Okay. And approximately how much money? I'm not sure how much she took out for our our trip, but I can o I can only estimate about a few hundred dollars. Few hundred, because at the time, the last time or you told me, you were pretty adamant about about eleven hundred dollars. So I'm curious to know how you came up with that number. I believe because when we were at the border, we and we stopped at the duty free. My mother was deciding whether to use her U.S. currency or her uh, her U.S. currency or her Canadian currency. So it was at that time you remember hearing eleven hundred dollars, and that's what is that the inference you're saying is that because you're pretty solid saying that it was eleven hundred dollars that went missing that was was taken, and that you saw it when we spoke. And who took it? Who took possession of the money? I'm sorry. It's all right. 
It seems she forgot exactly what she said about them finding the vacation money during her first interview. It's likely that she gave the money directly to the men and forgot her exact story. This is why she's so nervous at the beginning of this interview. That's not the only part of her story that doesn't match. Were you ever inside the room? Did they ever take you inside the room? Did you ever make it past the threshold of that door? She doesn't remember, but her story from the first interview is that number one was holding her near the bedroom door, and when he noticed the drawer that hadn't been searched, he pulled her over enough that he could reach the drawer. He then opened it and grabbed the cash inside, which she immediately said was $1,100 in U.S. currency. No hesitation. So that $1,100, did it get taken tonight? I believe so. And where would that, where would that have been? In my mom's bedside table. And... You said you saw them. Did they go into that bedside table? Once they're out of the master bedroom, number one asks number two to get the string from Cuz, or Cuzzy, and Jennifer has her right upper arm tied to the banister at the top of the stairs. This is where she says that number one took her glasses and threw them. At this point, he throws my glasses. Then he walks down the stairs. So he's still up there with you. When do you, and, and at this, so you've had your glasses on the whole time. When does he take them off? Right before he leaves. Right after, so you're, you're tied to the banister. You're just before he leaves to go down the stairs, your glasses are off. You have had your glasses on the whole time prior to that. Except that she said that that happened when they were still in her parents' bedroom in the first story. No, they, they had like something blind me. Like they, number one, when, when we first got in the room, the light was on. And he's like, hold on. And he grabbed, I don't remember what he grabbed, a jacket or sleeve or something. And he kind of like shell, shielded me with it. And that's when he took my glasses and he like tossed them. So he took your glasses off? Okay. How did you get your glasses back? I asked the officer. Okay. Oops. The detective clearly remembers what she said during her initial story because he makes sure to clarify that she had her glasses on the whole time up until she was tied to the banister. This is where her parents are taken downstairs and shot. Then, number one says, quote, Come on, it's taking too long, end quote, and the men run out the front door. Soon after, Han follows and Jennifer calls 911. The detective asks her to show him exactly how she was able to call 911 while still tied up. You're now bound to this, to the, to the railing. Can you show me, can you stand up and turn around and tell me, just show on the camera, how your hands are bound and how you are against the railing. You don't have to sit down. I just need to see how you work. The only reason that I'm trying to, I need to do this is that I'm also going to ask you is that it, so take this back to, from, take it out of a traumatizing event, which it is, and put, put yourself into a more clinical position, because I want to see how you could physically get your phone out of your waistband. We're obviously going to need to know that. It's very important. So traumatize a way, now put yourself into a, just a state of, I need to man mechanically show how I can get access to my phone. Okay, because that's obviously very relevant. I, we know you made the phone call. 
But questions are going to obviously raise is that if my hands are bound and I'm against the railing, how do I talk to a 911 operator? Okay, so clinically, this is now a clinical demonstration. Just stand up, focus in on how you did it. And I want you to stick that in your waistband as an example. Okay, so take your just take your sweat off because this will be a very smooth, very quick thing. It's a one-time demonstration. I'm not going to ask you to repeat it, but I need to go through it. Okay, so just take your sweater off. Stand up and turn around. Put this in the side that you believe it was in. Great. Turn around so that only you're looking away from me. You're looking exactly like now here is where the banister is. Put your hands back behind your back. It's exactly how you remember they were. Okay. Now, and the, are you restrained from movement? How far can you move your hands from the banister? They tied my upper arm. Yes. Around the banister. Yes. But my hands are bound together. So your hands bound together, and this is the arm that's the, the strings wrapped around against the banister? Mm -hmm. Okay, so now how can you get to the phone? And how do you make the phone call? 911. Mm -hmm. And do you talk down like that? Yes, I'm yelling at the phone like this. And how can you hear? I turned the volume on max. Yes. So that's exactly the way that you're talking to her against the railing. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good enough. Sit down. Jennifer takes her sweater off, and the detective gives her a fake cell phone to put in her waistband. She uses one hand to pull the phone out of her waistband and then twists herself around so that she's holding the phone on her right side by her waist and looking down at it. It looks like her demonstration is plausible, but it's much easier to move around, simulating being tied up, than it is when you're actually tied up. When she's twisting around to get her phone over to her right hip, her right arm moves around a lot more than it probably would have been able to if it was tied tightly to a banister. Detective Slade steps out of the room to talk to other investigators for a few minutes. While he's out, Jennifer is able to talk to another investigator who is in the next room watching the interview on a screen. She tells this investigator that she's nervous about saying the wrong thing. It's just like pieces here and pieces there, and I don't, I don't want to say something wrong, or like, just because I think I'm overthinking everything, and it's just like, yeah. well, I don't think you can... I mean, the truth is the truth, right? It's not, you know, it's not going to be wrong. No. Okay, it's, it, it is, it is what it is. And, um... No, just, like, with the details and everything, it's just... I want to get it right so, like, everything could be... Everything could be right. But it's just, like, it's pieces and... Yeah, but, I mean, you know, you know all the pieces are going to... They're, they're all going to come together and you're... It, all gonna fit, right? Because what you're gonna be, what you're saying is the truth. I'm just trying to, like, every time I think of those things, it just it gets me all worked up. But I have to think about, but I don't, I don't want to. As in, like, it just it brings back all everything. Okay. 
She's stressing out about getting caught in a lie, and she's trying to play down any of her discrepancies to this investigator. Then, that investigator drops this little tidbit. What you're saying in here is, is within the confines of this police station and, and our investigation, so it's not, you know, that's not something that we would release out to the public. Okay. Hoops? Well, that's not true. When Detective Slade comes back into the room, he starts asking her about her activities with Daniel. He tells her that the media thinks it was drug-related and that it may have had something to do with Daniel's drug dealing. He starts asking her if she was also involved in drugs, which she adamantly denies. She tells the detective that she knew that he was involved in that, but she didn't want anything to do with it. This leads the conversation in the direction of her spare SIM card, which she never brings up during her first interview. She had her own phone, a BlackBerry, remember those? And an iPhone. So The BlackBerry is what I was using with my own Roger SIM card. The phone I'm using now was an old phone that I no longer used. Okay, so... Because the reception was no good. The BlackBerry was your normal phone that yes. you were using on a regular basis. Yes. And... Um, and you would switch SIM cards. If, so if you were going to communicate with him with the other SIM card, you'd put the SIM card in that BlackBerry and talk to him through that? I had an iPhone. That you had I an kept, iPhone? I kept in my room that my parents didn't know about because um, my brother, I had one that Daniel gave me earlier, but it broke. Yeah. So my brother, he, what he did was he fixed the part so he can have one that he used himself. But uh, the one I had wasn't fully functioning. It was just able, uh, it had no internet access on it. So I just kept it for phone calls, and I kept it hidden. And where is that phone now? It should be still on my, in my room. Yes? Where? Uh, I believe it was on my laptop table or something, or on my counter. And it doesn't have a SIM card in it right now? No, I don't keep the SIM card in it, just in case my parents asked. Okay. She doesn't keep the SIM card in the iPhone. Just in case her parents find the iPhone, she can claim it doesn't work. As they near the end of the interview, Jennifer is clearly panicking. You're upstairs, and they're downstairs. No. Right? So it's a natural concern when, why would they leave you alone? Why would they not do the same to you? You can't answer that question? The only thing I can say is he said I cooperated. The, but I asked him to take me. The number one guy? Mom. The number one guy said you cooperated? Okay. There's no... You had no threats. And again, we're back to the fact that you admittedly lied. Okay, not to me. Right? No. Not to me. No. You admittedly lied. You've lied to your parents? right? About going to school. You've lied to, to Danny about being, Daniel about being raped and about receiving a bullet. Who's to say this whole thing isn't a lie? That what you're telling me is a lie? Because if you are lying, it's the most cold-blooded thing that I've ever faced in my life. Detective Slade also tells her, quote, if you've been truthful, you have nothing to fear, end quote which is only leading her to more panic. On November 12, 2010, Han Pan woke up from his coma and was immediately put under police watch until he could be questioned by detectives. 
He was not able to talk at first due to a device that was helping him breathe. Jennifer was not allowed to be alone with him. Instead of celebrating her father's recovery or mourning the loss of her mother, Jennifer went back to the hospital crisis counselor to talk about how all of this was affecting her. Her biggest concern was not the best way to help her father recover from his near-fatal injuries. It was about how she was being portrayed in the media. When detectives were finally able to speak with Han, he told them about the events of November 8th. He explained that three men, two black and one white, came into their home and demanded money. He described them as being tall, all above six foot. They were all wearing black turtlenecks, something police assumed was to hide tattoos. This description didn't match Jennifer's at all. She claimed that all three were black. She claimed that number one was a little shorter than her. She claimed that at least one of them was wearing a hoodie. These weren't details that you could perceive incorrectly because it was dark or because it was hectic. If you're five foot seven, you don't accidentally think someone who's over six foot is shorter than you. Next, Han had to tell detectives how his daughter was not tied up while they were being robbed at gunpoint. He said that she was moving freely around the house and at one point was talking to one of the men in a friendly, relaxed manner. After telling police about the details of Jennifer's actions, he specifically told them to do whatever they could to catch whoever did this. The police took that as his desire to see his daughter punished for her actions. Han told his family that he didn't want to see Jennifer, but she managed to get into his room and visit him. He didn't directly accuse her of being involved in the attack, but he did ask her if Daniel was involved. She denied that he had anything to do with it. I just wonder what's going through her mind. She knows that her father saw her free during the attack. What does she think he's going to do? Is she hoping that he won't say anything to police to protect her? Does she think he possibly doesn't remember? There's no way to know. On November 22nd, Jennifer was brought back into the police station for a third interview. This time, she was interviewed by Detective Bill Gates. No, not that Bill Gates. This time, Jennifer is definitely treated as a suspect because, well, she is one. Detective Gates uses an interrogation method known as the Reed Technique. This method has the interview take the stance that the interviewee is guilty and they need to explain how they're innocent. The technique was developed by John E. Reed, who was a psychologist and polygraph expert in the 1950s. It uses high-pressure questioning tactics to extract confessions out of suspects. It's become heavily criticized in recent years for commonly producing false confessions. I'm not a fan of the technique and believe it shouldn't be used, but I don't think it created a false confession in this case. One, the evidence showed that she was guilty, and two, she never ended up fully confessing to Detective Gates. This interview happens in a different room as the other interviews, and the audio is complete garbage. Not only is there a bunch of noise in the audio, but throughout most of the interview, Jennifer has her face in her hands and her answers are barely audible. Detective Gates starts the interview by talking to her a little bit about her past, and she tells him that she had previously been depressed. She regretted not going to college, you know, for real. She felt like her piano skills weren't progressing fast enough, her friends were moving on, and she didn't understand how, at the age of 21, she had a 9 o'clock curfew. She admitted to attempting to overdose on Tylenol, but it sounds like she says she only took like four or five pills. Then she tells him she started cutting herself. It wasn't an attempt to kill herself, just a means of feeling pain so she didn't have to feel other things. 
She thinks that her parents noticed the marks, but if they did, they never brought it up. When they got to the events of November 8th, she told the detective that she had a little over $1,000 saved up. She said between $2,000 and $2,500 in her first interview, and then $2,000 in her second interview. Now it's a little over $1,000. Eventually, Detective Gates brings out the big guns when it comes to the read technique. It's legal in both Canada and the United States for police to lie or deceive a suspect while they're being interrogated. Things like telling a suspect that their partner has already confessed or telling them that they failed a polygraph are perfectly acceptable tactics when questioning a perp. Now, to be clear, it is not my opinion that they are perfectly acceptable. I mean, based on being admissible in court, it's perfectly acceptable. Detective Gates told Jennifer that he was an expert in truth verification. The reason why I'm here today, okay, is that I'm an expert, okay, in what we call truth verification. Okay, I'm not a homicide detective, although I work on a lot of homicides. Okay. So my job in any case, and anybody that's a witness in this case, I have to speak to, okay, after they've been interviewed originally by anybody else, okay, and so what it's about is truth verification, okay, so basically all my studies come into interviewing and uh, detecting deception, uh, determine if somebody's telling the police the truth, okay. Because every investigation that we run that's a homicide, we run a parallel investigation, okay? And when I talk about a parallel investigation, what I mean by that is obviously the detectives that are assigned to the case, okay, are trying to determine who's responsible for the home invasion, who's responsible uh, for what happened there, okay? That's their job, okay? My job is to determine whether everything somebody has told us as a witness or as a reporting party is actually the truth. None of that is true, okay? But wait, there's more. So how do I make my conclusions, okay? So some of the ways is, obviously, I count on my experience, right? I talk to thousands of people, okay? And I basically know when somebody's not being straightforward with me. I can tell by the language they use, how they answer the question, their body language, how they treat the question, that something's wrong here. Okay, this doesn't make sense. Okay. The other thing is something, an understanding of what common sense is. Okay. Could this have happened that way? By what the person is telling me, could have it even happened like that? Okay. Is it realistic? Is it plausible? Okay. So, Basically, we're trained in statement analysis, okay? And these days, we even have software that assists us in that, okay? We're in the modern ages, right? Okay, so we have uh, computer programs. And one of the ones that we utilize in these cases is an analysis program called event probability analysis, okay? And what we do is we feed everything into the computer. Basically, the computer, I type it out, and we feed it in, and it takes... You scan it in, actually, and it takes a copy of everything that's been said. And it analyzes uh, what a person has said, okay? And based on what they say, it will tell us where the areas of deception are, okay? When something's missing uh, that they're not telling us, 
okay, areas of concern and uh, areas that are flat out not truthful, okay, and areas that they you come back with a result that says not plausible, okay, because what it is is this software analyzes, it's being entered by all police forces, okay, so it has data from thousands of cases, right, so if it gets information that's totally never happened before in any other case, right, that tells you something, right? Because human beings, there's only so many ways to do something, okay? And people follow patterns, okay? And when things go outside of a normal pattern, that's a red flag, right? Do you agree? So how does he tell if someone's lying? He just knows. Not only that, they feed everyone's statements into a computer and it tells them whether or not something is true. Welcome to fucking Minority Report, people. But wait, there's more. The other thing we do is we have to reach out to what we call modern technology, okay? So there's some of the things that we utilize as satellite, okay? Now, are you, do you know what satellite can do? Okay, do you watch any of these uh, when... Uh, these war programs on TV where they do bombings and stuff. Have you ever seen any of that? Or when uh, the Iraq war was on, you ever see any of the news clips where you can see the satellite honing in on buildings? Okay. So we can go back and obtain satellite information. Okay. And essentially the satellite's a 24-hour video that's going on, uh, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? It's recording information, okay? And that's how the military uses it in, you know, for precision bombing and everything else because they're able to find out where bombs are inside buildings and hone in on that through satellites and heat-seeking uh, uh, apparatuses that tell you what's going on inside, right? Okay? So we're able to go back uh, and review that, okay? And so we would have to obtain... Uh, that data for a specific address, uh, get it for the dates and time that we're concerned with, okay? And basically, if people are moving around in a house, um, it's like an x-ray, okay? And basically, we're able to tell, you know, are those movements, are those actions, that number of people consistent with the story that we've been told? Um, are the people in the positions that the witnesses are telling us they were in, uh, or are they different? Okay, and if they're different, why are they different is what, what our question becomes, right? So that's, a, that's another uh, thing that we do. Get the fuck out of here. The real world is not mission impossible. The police are not requesting thermal satellite images to track individual movement during their investigations. If these things were really available to them, then they should be solving way more crimes than they do. I don't like these bullshit tactics. I think they muddy the waters of an otherwise decent investigation. There was more than enough evidence against Jennifer to show she was guilty. Adding these sleazy used car salesman techniques just makes the police look like they pressured her into a false confession. What really pushes Jennifer to start revealing more of the truth is the fact that her father's statement didn't match hers. One of the things you have to remember is that your dad was there. Okay? And your dad had a front row seat to all of this. Okay? And your dad's a very smart man. Okay? 
and he has a very clear perception of what's going on. And he tells a very truthful story, because I've gone through this whole process with him. Okay, I've had to do the same thing. And I know he's being truthful. Okay? The problem is that your story, what you're telling, is not truthful. Okay? And we have to clear this up. The investigator didn't need to make up a bunch of science fiction for that. It's the truth. Han described the incident, how it really happened, and Jennifer knows that his retelling is accurate. So she has to come up with a new story to explain away her involvement. Jennifer tells the detective that she hired a man named Lenford Crawford to come to her house and kill her. She claimed that she wanted to commit suicide, but couldn't do it herself. This only leads to more questions. Why wouldn't they come to your house when you were alone? Why wouldn't they have you come outside of the house and shoot you there? And of course, why would they shoot your parents, but then leave you, the actual target, alive? She claimed that Lenford told her that he would let her know when it was going down, but didn't give her a specific time. He said, quote, I'll do it when I have time, end quote. Eh, I'll kill you when I get around to it. She was supposed to have $2,000 in cash ready, and a few hours before they arrived on November 8th, she got a text message that read, quote, Game on, end quote. At about 9.15 p.m., they texted, quote, VIP access, end quote. You let them in the house. You let them in. We know that. You went downstairs and you opened that door for them. We know that. Jen... You did leave the door open for them, didn't you? Pardon? Yes. Yes. And that's why you went downstairs earlier in the night, right? After your mom got home, what did you do? Went down and said hello. Pretended to check the door. And was it locked? No. You made sure it was unlocked. She went downstairs, said hello to her mother, and made sure the door was unlocked. Other questions about this story were why she tucked her phone in her waistband when number one wasn't looking. If you thought they were going to kill you, why grab the phone? And of course, Han said Jennifer was walking around freely, talking to the men as they were robbing her parents at gunpoint. How does that fit into the suicide story? It doesn't. Jennifer Pan was arrested at the end of that interview and charged with murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. The three men who carried out the attack were Eric Carty, David Milvaganam, and Lenford Crawford. All three suspects, plus Daniel Wong, were arrested in connection with the crime and given the same charges. All five defendants pleaded not guilty and the 10-month trial began in March of 2014. The prosecution had a mountain of evidence against Jennifer. Investigators had uncovered hundreds of text messages between Jennifer and Daniel. Some were sent within a few hours before the attack. In a text thread on November 2nd, Daniel texted Jennifer, quote, I feel the way you feel about me, but about her. I'm sorry, end quote, referring to his new girlfriend, Christine. After several texts asking Daniel to clarify, Jennifer texted, quote, So you feel for her what I feel for you, then call it off with Homeboy, end quote. Homeboy was the person she originally set up the hit with. She didn't know if it was any one of the three men who arrived at her house on the night of the incident. The text exchange continued, Daniel, 
quote, what do you mean? I thought you wanted this for you, end quote. Jennifer, quote, I do, but I have nowhere to go, end quote. Daniel, quote, you said you wanted this with or without me, end quote. Jennifer, quote, I want this for me, end quote. It sure doesn't sound like the plan is to have the men kill her. She says she has nowhere to go, because the original plan was to kill her parents, so she and Daniel could be together. If Daniel doesn't want to be with her and her parents are killed, she has nowhere to go. Jennifer spent days on the stand trying to twist the evidence into a scenario where she didn't put out a hit on her parents, but in the end, she couldn't make any other explanation seem reasonable. Jennifer Pan was found guilty on all charges. She was sentenced to two life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years, to be served concurrently. Daniel Wong, David Mulvaganam, and Lenford Crawford all received the same sentence. Eric Cardi's lawyer got sick during the trial and it was eventually declared a mistrial. He then pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to 18 years. Han Pan requested that Jennifer be given a non-communication order by the court. She is permanently banned from ever contacting her father or her brother ever again. At the end of his impact statement, Han said, quote, I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good, honest person someday, end quote. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will instantly take your browser to a Google search page. In the event the abuser is nearby, you can assure that you don't get caught trying to get help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Be safe. Thanks so much for watching this video. You can help us out by hitting the like button or leaving us a comment. You can also subscribe to the show to ensure you don't miss an episode. Also, remember that if you'd like to support the show, the easiest way is to donate a few bucks at Buy Me A Coffee or check out some of our merchandise at Teespring. You can find information on how to do that along with links to our social media at thisismonsters.com. Thanks again. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over.
Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Okay, so, presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone.